up, everyone, and welcome to the first 2020 Beat a Dead Source Master Debater Competition. I am Angela Sinsley Wilder, and I will be your moderator for tonight's debate. Our debate will be between Nathan, your bow, bow, bow candidate, Andy, your United Thoughtful Individuals Party candidate, and Pat, your Liberty and Justice candidate. Tonight's debate format will be as follows. Each topic will be given to each candidate, and they will get one minute to discuss freely without interruption, and then they will get four minutes of open discussion. Agreed? Agreed. Yeah. Sure. All right. Let's get straight to it. First question. Ready? I, I am ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm more ready than they are. Nobody sounds ready. All right. Fatal police shootings are at an all-time high in our country, with 661 civilians having been shot, 123 of whom were African Americans, as of August 30th, 2020. How will you tackle the issues of police brutality and racism in the criminal justice system? And will you support the Justice and Policing Act? First up is Nate. Well, first of all, uh, I would like to uh, thank you for hosting. I'd like to thank uh, Skype for uh, providing us with this lovely hall to debate in tonight. And uh, I'm just happy to be here. I think my answer to this, first of all, yes, I will absolutely support the Justice and Policing Act. I would end qualified immunity. I would have peace officers live in the areas they support. I would hire peace officers based on matching the race, culture, etc. of the areas that they represent. I would make sure we have tougher standards on who is hired uh, to avoid hires like police bullies or control freaks or, God forbid, racists. Defund police is a great idea with the dumbest name liberals have ever come up with. So only 4% of police calls involve, involve violent situations. We need to reallocate police funds to provide for trained specialists to respond to 911 calls and other situations. We need to keep our arm- time. Oh, all right. I have more better ideas, but we'll get to that. Mo better? And Andy. Right. Well, thank you. Uh, and, and I also want to thank you, Angela, for, for hosting tonight. And I want to thank the American people for putting three candidates on this stage finally. I want to start right out of the gates by saying my, my opponent here is actually spot on when he talks about ending qualified immunity and, and voicing his support for the Justice Policing Act. They're great ideas. Um, he's absolutely right that defund the police is one of the worst names liberals have ever come up with. Um, but listen, these things, even even body cameras on officers does not really address the root of the problem here. We need to take deeper action. Uh, the systemic racism is embedded deep in our country's roots. We need to end the war on drugs. We need to release and guarantee employ employment for nonviolent drug offenders retroactively. Uh, and we need to reform our prison system and our education system to, uh, to reduce recidivism and improve accountability of POs to reduce prison violence. Time. All right. And Pat. Well, thank you very much, Angela, for being with us tonight and for helping us moderate. So I would call the Justice in Policing Act a step in the right direction. I don't think it's completely perfect. The, the best thing that we can do right now is end internal affairs. We no longer have police investigating police. What we need to do is we need to get a civilian council that is diverse and representative of the community, and they are going to be empowered in order to review these cases. So when there is a case that's brought up of police brutality, 
the people who are uh, acting as authority on these cases, the people who make the final judgment call and whether to bring evidence before a grand jury, are not police. This is something that the community needs to handle, and we need to have a diverse representation of people in the community. So we're going to end... Time... All right, at this point, I'm going to open the stage up for open discussion. Please use this time wisely and be respectful of each other. Well, I just want to finish my point, so I want to end qualified immunity as well. So what we need to be doing is we need to have a system that is equipped and able to hold police accountable for their actions. What we're doing right now, it's simply not working. It sounds great on paper, but these these community-led uh, accountability panels have been tried many, many times, they, and they've never worked. What makes it? What makes you think that they would suddenly work this time? I don't know what study you're referring to, but it's taking the power outside of the community of policing. Have you heard of the blue wall or the blue shield? There is a, uh, a camaraderie, there is a brotherhood of police that are working to suppress evidence and to fabricate evidence to keep the police from accountability. Um, the only way that you can do that is by by empowering people that are outside of the policing uh, community. They might be outside of the police force, but they're still sympathetic to those same causes, which is why, the and those are the people who make it onto those panels, which is why they have always, so far anyway, they have always resulted in, in, in there's been a, a, an increase for a little while, a, an improvement for a little while, but they fall right back into the same problems because the p- only people who are, gonna, who are serving on those panels are people who are already sympathetic to the police, police unions, and these uh, and qualified immunity type causes. Well, Andy, I'm glad that you've so identified... We need, to get, we need to get citizens engaged, but we can't, we can't just mandate citizen engagement. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you uh, have identified the problem then. Uh, clearly, we need to get different people, different community organizers on these panels that aren't automatically going to trust the police over citizens. I think exactly. I think what we need is a different way to set up those panels. I'm fine with police having a voice. I'm fine even with unions having a voice. It just needs to be a little eeny teeny itsy bitsy voice. You can go ahead and be there, um, but it's going to be citizens that make that decision. It needs to be a rotating uh, cycle of citizens from a variety of economic backgrounds, racial backgrounds, uh, cultural backgrounds. So one of the uh, studies that I've seen is indicated anyway, and this is just one, they looked into a couple cases, a couple instances across the country. So not sure if this is a bulletproof plan, but even just having outside other third-party police departments investigate, like from across the state, investigating uh, occurrences within another de- police department, that, that since they don't know each other, they don't work with each other, that they're able to remain relatively objective. Um, so, Nathan, you touched on something that I think is really important, is police unions. I'm generally a very big fan of unions. Yeah. I think unions are great. <laughs> But we, and that makes it a complicated issue because I think what we need to do is we need to reform the way that these unions. Well, operate. police unions we need to be able to. Yeah, police unions are garbage because their job is to support the police over the citizens, 
um, when they need to be... I respect... Right. It's a, it's a slippery slope. It's a slippery slope to try and say that we're going to limit a union's power. But I think in this case, that could be something that's appropriate. Yeah, we definitely... I respect everything you guys are saying, but again, we're not really addressing the root problem here where African Americans and people of color are being targeted unfairly from the get-go by the legal system, by the legal code itself, not just by the officers enforcing Certainly. it. Certainly. And we need to be able to address that also. And that is time... Hmm. All right. Next question. What are your views on white nationalism and how will you combat the resurgence of hate crimes of all natures, including but not limited to racial, homophobic, anti-Semitic and xenophobic? We are going to start with Andy. Sure. So listen, this is a huge question. This is very important. There's a difficult line to walk because we cannot um, necessarily pursue people for disliking other people. Right. But that, when it comes down to it, this is really kind of a silly question. Uh, the, the FBI has already identified these hate groups uh, as a, a preeminent threat to America, to freedom, to democracy. Um, the fact that we haven't already been pursuing them is absurd. It's a direct reflection of this administration and their Republican cronies enabling and even encouraging racial tensions and white supremacist sentiment as well as anti-LGBTQ uh, sentiment in their base in order to cling on to power. Uh, from the moment I take office, we will pursue these groups and their violent ideas to the fullest extent of the law, and we will not allow hate crimes to persist in this country. And that is time. Next up, we're going to go with Nate. I think it goes oh, to it? after me. I think, I think the moderator gets to go whatever direction she yeah, wants to go. The moderator can do whatever order she wants. Touche. Shutting up. I think Andy should uh, be docked a few points for that uh, talk back. <laughs> points. All right. When, just tell me whenever to start. Nate, you are on. Well, uh, we here at the Baron Party uh, firmly disavow any white nationalism. The Proud Boys can go eat a dick. Any racists, we don't want your vote. Uh, the problem with our current administration is they can't speak out against white nationalism because that's their base. They can't speak out against racists because they need those racists to get them involved. And when you disavow something and your statement is so strong that the people you disavowed start making T-shirts of the disavowment that you made and use it as a recruitment tool, you're a piece of so I'm just saying that Donald Trump is a piece to start out with. Secondly, we we need to make racism unacceptable again. You absolutely have the right to free speech. And I... Oh, is that... That is all right. Sad faces, but we are going to hit that now. Okay, so white nationalism is universally and widely condemned by U.S. politicians. And I condemn it here now. I condemn white nationalism and hate in all its forms. But I believe that the way to combat hate is education, understanding, and compassion. I think the antithesis to hate is understanding people's story and where they come from. So what we need to do is we need to improve education in this country all over. We need to make our public schools, uh, we need to give them the resources that they need in order to educate people in the right way. Uh, hate has absolutely no place in government, in office, in law enforcement. 
Um, the penalties for hate crimes already exist. Uh, where we can, it's our role to bring compassion, understanding, and diversity to our communities. You can't legislate people's opinions and thoughts. So it becomes a very difficult, intractable problem. And that is time. All right, gentlemen, your four minutes for open discussion starts now. Mm. Well, I was going to say, first before of all, we Before we get too deep into this, in case it wasn't clear enough, I also disavow all of these hate oh, groups, white oh, nationalism, two, anti-LGBTQ groups, etc. Et you, you disavow LGBT I groups. I was pretty... Okay, I see. Wow. I said anti... Wow. Anti-LGBTQ no, I'm, I'm frankly shocked. Yes. I said anti-LGBTQ Oh, okay. What, whatever you need to say. I would like to say, I quite enjoyed what... Whatever I already <laughs> said to me. I liked what you had to say, uh, Pat, about education. And when the Bam 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 Party yes. wins, we will happily bring you on to our uh, cabinet. Um, maybe in education. Great. That's, that's it, it, wonderful. It'll be nice to have you working under us. <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. So, so I think when you understand where someone's story comes from... And America's strength is our diversity and this story, this history of where we came from. It's really hard to hate someone for something as simple as the color right. of their skin. I think where these where these ideas thrive is they thrive in ignorance. Absolutely. I can't tell you how many um, former racists. I, I fell down the former racist rabbit hole on YouTube at one point, And I actually have a couple of friends who were racist in the past. And seeing those people and realizing, oh, they're not the monsters that your parents and grandparents told you they were, that's how you fight racism. Yeah, and and I'm sorry to say this because this is a tough answer to hear, but sometimes these things do take time. Um, You need to have peer groups that aren't (laughs) racist. Like The way that racism spreads is through generations and through peers. it's yeah. a slow process, but we uh, we can't let it stagnate. It's got to be something that's energetic that we actively fight. But at the same time, it takes a long time to change people's hearts and change people's opinions. Fine and well and good, but we ha- we're living right now in a country where uh, 25, 30 percent of the population uh, descended from descending from from various levels of slavery and, and in the region um, have been oppressed and oppressed and oppressed through generations of of wealth gaps and legislation against them. Uh, we have to start the work of undoing all of that damage, centuries of damage. I think Michael said it uh, in a way I really liked uh, in our uh, Black Lives Matter roundtable uh, discussion. Uh, sometimes you just need to let racists die off. <laughs> and I think as that's happening, uh, things are getting better. It's not that your children aren't going to become racist as well sometimes, but those children have access to YouTube and TV and people that don't look like them, even if they don't live in their town, they see them and they see positive examples of them in the media in ways that they haven't in previous generations. Certainly Boy, not when I grew up. That's a weird bid for president that just racists need to just die but okay. oh I, I already said i don't want their votes you can have all the racist votes that you want andy but oh. we at the bear bear party have already disavowed those votes so we need we need to expose these racists to diversity we need to have compassion and empathy so rather than just letting them die we could change their minds you know yeah that's more important to me I think that is an excellent idea. I think starting early is a great idea. I think it's also a way to combat school, like uh, mass shootings and uh, bullying and 
all these things. If you can show compassion through the education system in early education and continue that on through uh, grade school and junior high and high school. Absolutely. As wonderful as that statement was about to be, I have to cut you off. I, I like it when you cut me off early because it sounds like I had something smarter to say after the timer went off <laughs> instead of it's like, like a little just reprieve. running out of steam at that part of the sentence. So I love it. It's great. Yes. Okay. Up next, we have a gotcha question that is specifically formed for our candidate, Pat. I'm going to give him two minutes to state his case and then open it up for open discussion. Four minutes as well. Pat, are you ready? Sure. Alrighty. Given that 74% of firearms used in mass shootings in America were obtained legally, what is the responsibility of legal gun owners in the U.S. to reduce the availability of guns to these potential murderers? What legislation would you enact to fix this epidemic of violence in the country while also respecting the rights and privacy of the American citizens? And your time begins now. Go. Um, so th- this is a complicated issue for me because... In the strongest terms, I condemn violence in all its forms. I think that the most important safeguard that we have against tyranny is our Second Amendment rights. And the reason that we don't have a tyrannical government is because the American citizens are armed. So given that, what can we do in order to reduce the horrible violence that we see in this country, school shootings, mass shootings, spree shootings. Um, one thing that I have seen that is a good idea is we should have psychological profiling. We should have um, the already existing criminal background checks. We should make it more difficult for people to obtain firearms. However, I'm really not willing to impinge the rights of the American citizens to safely and legally own firearms. What you're doing when you legislate legal gun owners is you're not eliminating the already illegal guns that are in the hands of criminals. You are just disarming the law-abiding citizens. So the entire notion that you can legislate an end to violence that way, I think is just a little misguided. What we need to do is we need to create a culture that no longer finds this acceptable. And I think one of the big ways that we can do that is we need to stop glorifying these shooters in the media. When you see like a a shooter's manifesto, when you see their names and they're famous and they're, they're all over the country, there's coverage all over the country, I think really the media is to blame for this recent rave of shootings. Beautiful, and then it's time. Open discussion starts now. So, you couldn't end all of these, but apparently you could end 74% of them. You could end three-fourths of shootings because that's the percentage that were uh, committed by legally obtained firearms. And and so what would you do? You would take the guns out of the hands of law-abiding citizens? You would say no more guns anymore? I think that's pretty short-sighted. Sure, but that's not what I said, and I wasn't the well, one no, who was asked the question. A... That, that was that was you. Um, okay, but now we're in open discussion. So, would you take the guns out of the hands of law-abiding citizens and I, only allow criminals to be the ones that have guns? I would certainly take the guns out of some citizens' hands. I think, uh, like so many different issues with the party, 
we like to listen to science and experts on this. And we know if you have a history of domestic violence, for example, you shouldn't have a damn gun. Uh, we know that if you have a history of racial bias, if you have a history of racism, you shouldn't have a damn gun. Wow, they, big brother. You're, you're really proposing a very tyrannical system that is going to evaluate people on bigotry and then allow or disallow their gun ownership. Like, on paper, maybe that sounds great, but that's an easily abused system. Yeah, if it's a, if it's a system that is based on the history and the types of people that cause mass shootings, then yeah, absolutely. We, we would be willing to do that. I don't, I don't give two whether you get to have a gun or not. I'm, I'm sorry. That that's fine. That's the Bramer Bramer party's uh, stance. I think that, I think that's a really bad thing. That's, uh, that's one, that's one party's stance. And, um, you know, over here at the UTI party, you know, we, we, we don't want you to, feel pain and to suffer in at the UTI party we care UTIs care and uh, what we want is mostly to make UTI jokes and then talk a little bit about gun rights and here's the thing it's an incredibly nuanced discussion so so to continue to to continue the point that I had before so since Columbine the 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 pattern that has emerged is uh, really striking. We didn't have anywhere near the number of school shootings pre-Columbine. And what was mm -hmm. Columbine? It was a huge media hit. People were tuning in all over the country. It was huge ratings. Um, Dylan Claybold, his name was all over the country. Everyone knew their names. It was a, a huge spectacle. Right. And every person who would be a prospective shooter understood that in order to get famous, in order for everyone to know my name, or possibly in order to get my manifesto into every household in America, what I have to do is go commit a horrific act of violence. It was it was Pandora's box. We can't glorify we can't glorify these shootings in the media anymore. We have to we have to change the way that we are covering these stories and it can't just be whatever makes media companies the most money. That's insensitive, that's horribly damaging to our country. I think it's really critical that we remember that this is a very nuanced issue as we go into this, though. Being able... Pat makes a very good point that citizens being able to arm themselves is, is one of the most important protections against tyrannical government. Even if you want to make the argument that you... What are you going to stand up to the U.S. military, which is fair, but... I'm going to die trying if they're going to come and take my freedom away. Sure, but you could die with a bow and arrow, you know? So, like so we already don't have military-grade weapons. You you as a citizen can't have an automatic rifle. You can't have grenades and ordnance and explosives. And so here's so here's the thing, though. We need to understand. We Right. We need to understand that we cannot prevent... And that is time. <laughs> oh, that was, a, that was a good one. I got needed. Well, I'm relieved that the gotcha question is over. <laughs> I mean, it was kind of like a, a anxiety I had. Did about... you feel like that was fair? No, that was absolutely fair. I that was even related to the question that I sent you as a joke. Absolutely, I was like, oh, you know, like I thought, like Andy had told you or something. I think so... it brought out a lot of points out of you guys too, like inadvertently. Uh, and that that actually would have been like the way that I would have written a question for myself. So good job. Thank you.
Well, these these issues specifically are always interesting because we do agree on a lot of yeah. stuff. And these issues are specifically, I assume, things that we don't agree with each other on, which always brings out an interesting argument with us. Well, and specifically framed to try to set up someone to look like an idiot defending it. Like, All right. With Big Pharma being one of the biggest campaign contributors with over 100 million in contributions over the last decade, how will you tackle the influence in Washington of special interest groups, including the fossil fuel lobby? First up is we're going to go Pat, Matt, and Andy because we didn't last time. And Pat, go for it. Okay, so we need to overturn the awful Supreme Court Citizens United ruling. We need to end super PACs and severely limit campaign contributions from individuals, corporations, non-governmental organizations. Corporate personhood is a big problem uh, in our country. And campaign finance reform is a big issue for me in particular. Unlimited campaign finance has been made illegal in the past in the U.S. for obvious reasons. And this Supreme Court ruling is really kind of a radical departure from something that we had to learn in the past in a very costly way. So it's basically legalized bribery. Politicians in the pockets of big corporations and lobbyists are a threat to all of our collective sovereignty and erode the democratic representative foundation of our public. And that is time. Nate, go for it. I am actually in agreement uh, with my colleague here. Um, we at the Baron Bar- 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 Party also think that campaign finance reform would fix a number of issues in the country, and this would be one of them. You can go ahead and express your opinion. Any any citizen of the country can express express their opinion to their politician, but that opinion should be expressed in words, not in dollars. And those dollars are what cause so much trouble to our system. And as long as politicians need to raise $10,000 a day from the time they get elected to the time the next election happens, there's never going to be a point where they are working for the American people instead of these massive companies that try and, like, again, my colleague said, bribe them into doing what they want them to do. And that is time. Darn it. I had so many other good points. And Andy, go for it. Sure. So, listen, lobbying is difficult to fight. Um, But I think the corrosive effect on our government and policy decisions is is brutally clear. So besides overturning Citizens United, um, I agree that campaign financing and fundraising laws or, or reform is one of the biggest things to target. The UTI plan would uh, fund all campaigns from a uh, public pool, and every person, corporation, and organization will have $500 of campaign bucks to donate to any number of candidates on their ballot in any way that they choose. Um, if they choose not to donate, they don't get to keep the money. It just stays in the pool and doesn't get used. Um, these donations will be public information. It'll, you can look up who donated to who. Um, there's going to be a lot of other measures necessary, but I, I, I think a great place to start and an easy place to start and time. is this. We will start our open discussion. Go. It is interesting to me, Andy, that uh, your plan sounds... A whole lot like a plan that was proposed by the Bram 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 Party, 
uh, several episodes ago. Uh, do you want to do you want to touch base on that real quick? Did you want a, a chance to respond? Hey, listen. Yeah, sure, absolutely. A stop clock is right twice a day. You guys nailed it with this. Right, right. so why is mm, money in politics a big problem? So if everybody votes, like, with their their knowledge and their experience and what they have heard, it's the negative campaign ads that have been proven to be really, really effective in energizing a base of voters. Um, it's these negative campaign ads that let uh, all this money turn directly into political power. And I, for one, am absolutely sick of seeing ads right before elections everywhere that I go. Um, it completely inundates our Yeah, I agree. And, uh, and I think that's been a big, a big contributor sure. to the, the partisanship and, and vitriol in the country, the, the negative voting. You know, no one's voting for Biden for the most part, or no one, <laughs> no one's voting. <laughs> the, most people are voting against Trump, not for any other candidate in particular. Few, maybe few people. I mean, I agree with both of you. Ooh. I think we should also abolish the electoral college, um, because, that is clearly why we're seeing these ads here in Ohio, as well as other swing states, uh, because uh, candidates are required to hit the same 12 states over and over and over again. Uh, the same In 2016, the same 12 states got two-thirds of the visits uh, from uh, candidates. 24 states never saw a visit from a nominee from a major party. So, so you would significantly reduce the political representation of people in Nebraska, in Wyoming, in yeah, Montana. I, I think that these citizens should have a say as much as anyone else. Absolutely. They should have exactly the same say as everyone else. They should have one citizen and one vote. But we here in Ohio have 18 electoral college votes when we should have 21 based on our population. But we don't. Because the people of Iowa stole ours because they don't have enough uh, people in their state to go ahead and have that many electoral votes. But each state, no matter how low their uh, population, uh, each of them gets three electoral votes. And I, I, for one, I think statehood matters. I think statehood should give people representation in government. I think that that is the foundation of our country, and I don't really see a problem. Like, maybe we could try no. a slow reform where we shift over time, but to radically just say that we're going to end the Electoral College, it's a very jarring and a very disenfranchising thing for a lot of voters. Let me tell you who's disenfranchised by the Electoral College. It's people of color, because people of color... Latinos, African Americans, and things like that—they tend to live in things larger like cities. There's a very easy They're, middle ground fix, which is just proportional distribution of elector electors. You mean people? Yeah, I, people like that? Is that is that where you're going to draw your line? <laughs> you think what? you you got Who's, me there? I said uh, Latinos, African Americans, and uh, things like that. When I meant yes, people. And like that, that is time. Okay, so question number five: If elected. What structural and organizational reforms to the federal government would you propose? And do you think the Senate should eliminate the filibuster? First up, we have Pat. Um, so 
the filibuster is a complicated issue, and one of the reasons is it's it's one of the only ways that a minority in government can really have a say. So when you say you're going to eliminate the filibuster, what a lot of the present parties mean is they would like to eliminate the filibuster when they are not in the minority. Um, and so it's a really tough issue. I'm not sure that we should do anything with the filibuster, but it is really it's tough for the American people to look at their government and see someone reading, literally reading the riot act and say that their government is doing a good job. So what we can maybe do is uh, work to change the filibuster, limit the amount of time that a person can spend uh, reading on the Senate floor. Um, but I think the filibuster it's it's gotten him and that is time so i love mr smith goes to washington as much as the next guy i mean who doesn't love seeing jimmy stewart sitting there all like sweaty and like grabbing papers and throwing stuff around and like standing up and being all tired um but that's not what the filibuster is anymore the republicans have become a party of doing nothing always regressing the country and mostly more than anything being obstructionists as much as they can. So what they do with that filibuster is making sure that progress in this country cannot happen. And I'm done. I'm good. If they if they were operating in good faith, we could go ahead and keep that rule and then when something important came up, one of them could like stand there and like read their Betty Crocker recipes or whatever and make sure that their voice is heard. All right. But while protecting uh, the interests of minorities is, as Pat stated, one of the main reasons our government is not a pure democracy, right? The founding fathers were very flawed, but they did get that right. They knew a true democracy means majority rule. Majority rule means mob rule. They were concerned that the majority of Americans in coastal cities would constantly outvote the more sparsely populated rural parts of America, um, and, and, and much to everyone's detriment. So if that happened, there's no guarantee that those people and their interests are protected. The Senate is one of those protections for the minorities in the country who otherwise would get steamrolled in legislation. So, um, look, it is a problem. Uh, Nathan stated very clearly it's a big problem. The Senate uh, stonewalls a lot of stuff. We've got to institute uh, reforms. We've got to institute term limits. Um, but also voters need to vote. Yeah, we're going to roll into open discussion. I like how you guys, we just like brought the Electoral College and the Senate both in the same conversation and how they are both uh, because it lets the minority party stop any progress that is happening. So I really had a problem with um, the way that you characterized the filibuster as a Republican-only problem. Because I think in your mind that it is a specifically Republican problem. The filibuster has been used by both parties, Democrats and Republicans. Oh, sure. And and when it's used properly, I have zero problem with it. But that's not how it's used. Used properly in your mind is used for your own personal interests. Yeah. No, yeah, no not at all. I, I think that I, I think that when when Democrats are a minority, they have absolutely no problem using the filibuster. Right. It's so it's so it's not a procedural problem. It is a I the, want more the way power that, for the myself. The way I problem. like to think about uh, 
powers like this, uh, especially check pow- powers on or, or checks on powers, like a filibuster, or there's other ones out there. But is is um, you know when the tables are turned, when you're in the minority, do you want to be able to turn to that to help you make your case? Or the flip side, if it's a power, a, 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 a different kind of power, um, would you want the opposing party to be able to enforce that power or not? Because if you wouldn't want the filibuster when you're in the minority, then we could talk about it. But if if you are perfectly comfortable using it when, when you're in the minority, but not allowing a, the other party to use it when they're in the minority, then it's just a problem of your own bias. No, report, Republicans block everything and no. add nothing. And that is my problem. If they were if they were using it properly and they were adding things to the law that helped the American people and they were doing things that were productive, that's great. But what they do is they stop progress. That is their job. So they will argue that they are st- preventing harm from happening to the country. That's what they will say. Right. And it's horse what it's doing is it's preventing preventing progress. And so if they if they if they blocked it and then offered an alternate solution, that would be something. But they never all do that second step. They always block it and then nothing because they're not a party so of progress, the underlying they're a problem, of obstruction. I'm sorry. The, so I think the underlying problem we hear is we have here is that we don't have accountability for people in Congress. If somebody goes on C-SPAN and reads, like you said, cooking recipes for nine hours, I think that that should be embarrassing. If you have to resort to that kind of power, there should be some kind of accountability to the American people for that power. And the problem is that people aren't tuning into C-SPAN to see that. Um, what we need to do is we need to reduce... Uh, we need to set term limits. We need to set shorter terms. We need to make Congress more answerable to the people, more accountable to the people. And we need to encourage a populace, a population that holds those congressional representatives more accountable. Well, Which have... brings me back to my point about voting, because ultimately when 40 to 50 percent of the country doesn't get out on election day, even during a presidential election, let alone during midterms, they are, they're allowing it to happen. If, if what you need to... Like, as a voter, we have to go do it. I have good news for both of you because if we end the Electoral College, it won't matter what state you live in, if you're on the coast or whatever, each person's vote will count for one vote. And so it won't be the people of New York or the people of L.A. or the people of Miami who are outvoting anybody else. It'll just be individual citizens making individual votes. The the state That's of, not the way it would the be state at of all. New York. It would absolutely so you... <laughs> Oh, we're really good at shutting up when the timer goes off. <laughs> Not like real yes. politicians. <laughs> All right. What are your plans to engage with government scientists, public health experts, and researchers, especially in ongoing efforts to address the current environmental issues such as climate change? Andy, you are up first. So look, uh, I'll be honest with you. It is absurd to even be talking about this. All right, we should absolutely be listening to them. That doesn't necessarily mean we should be taking every action they suggest, but it does mean their voices should be some of the first and loudest in making decisions about what we do do. Ah, do do. Don't giggle. (laughs) Finding sources of clean, renewable energy needs to be a priority. Uh, This means federal government needs to be subsidizing research via private industry and providing uh, all support workers 
all the support that workers need to transfer their skills to a new form of energy or out of the energy industry and into something else. Jobs should, the fact that jobs is one of the main political impediments to making this change is absurd. We can absolutely fund that sort of those sorts of programs, and we're allowing the government to spend tons of money instead in subsidies to hold the, a dying industry, coal and oil, together so that they can line big oil's pockets. This is an investment program, and we and need to make this fine. now. Who he was on mm. that minute? Boom. <laughs> Pat, you are up next. <laughs> Go. Okay. Okay. The scientists, doctors, nurses, and scholars that we have in America represent our best and brightest minds. My administration will work closely with scientists from around the globe to make sure that our policies are informed by and conform to the very best state-of-the-art data available. Where it's cost-effective to do so, we will lower greenhouse gas emissions, reduce energy, and increase in efficiency. Use tax incentives to encourage citizens to use cleaner and more efficient fuel sources, incentivize builders to make buildings that are more heat and cool efficient, to make the world friendlier for electric cars by constructing recharging stations that are easily accessible all around the country. Wind, solar, geothermal, and nuclear energy are going to be top priorities to reduce fossil fuel sources. And we also need an energy grid that can more effectively ration our power for peak use. We need infrastructure, batteries, and a smart grid to make all this possible. And it all starts with the leadership of the federal government to happen. The truth is that going green is already cost-effective. Oh, wherever it is... Nate, go. Well, I'm glad you can tell pretty obviously which questions we had a chance to actually prepare for. <laughs> first of all, the first thing I would do with scientists is believe them. Um, I would go ahead and take research, not just research but the context of that research from the top experts in that field, I'd want to hear from them. I'd want to hear from people who uh, felt differently from them, but still had uh, reputable research. The thing is, I don't give a shit about the economy so much when it comes to this. It's too important anymore. And so the good news is green energy is also good for the economy. But while I think uh, reusable straws and, uh, like, taking uh, reusable bags to the grocery store and stuff are great. 71% uh, of global emissions for climate change come from 100 companies. So, first of all, tax the fuck out of those companies. Make that sure... That is time. I'm going to immediately go into the discussion. There we go. Yeah. All right. So renewable energy is the future. We just yeah. need to get to that future fast. Absolutely. I think it is the government's role in order to incentivize and encourage investment in that sector. And that is, to some extent, already happening. Where companies have an incentive to do it, we found that they are very effective in finding those mm -hmm. cost-cutting measures. Yeah. I think we can pull subsidies away from coal and other fossil fuels and throw it right into renewable energy. Yeah, most but of the, I would say we can't absolutely listen. Most of the most of the political movement against this it relies on the the concern surrounding the loss of jobs in the coal and oil industries. So really the trick to getting this through is just making that transfer of of the labor industry right. as and, smooth as possible. And the biggest, That's the biggest impediment. That's all. I really do take issue I take issue with throwing the economy into the dumpster though in order to move this forward. I think we can well, find yeah, a compromise so between both and it does become cost effective in the long run. 
But what you need to focus on is that there are ways that we can incentivize companies to do this that is not going to trash the economy. So renewable resources, renewable energy do have problems. There are advantages to coal and oil that are hard to get around. Our energy consumption in this country is absurd. So it's completely unsustainable in the long run for us to consume as much energy. One of the big things that we need to do is we need to focus on reducing our sure. own energy use. And yeah. some of that comes from individuals. Uh, I do, listen, a very small percentage of it. What Nathan pointed out earlier is is super important. It, it, this is not a problem of individuals contributing to climate change. That is certainly uh, on the table. But the big problem is these big companies. That's who we have to focus on. Yeah, so those 100 companies, they cost 71% of global emissions. And what we need to do is we need to tax them and we need to force them to do business. And I really I really take issue with I don't care about the economy. I, I think the economy is something that we need to take into consideration as we move forward with this. No, the exact reason why we're in the position that we are now is because the economy takes God precedence over everything else. And this is the planet it is the survival of the human race and every other god species on this planet so the economy can go f itself well, i'm not saying i'm not saying the economy is what keeps food no, on people's no, tables no that's not so. true the, the way that's that we need to do this that's, is with innovation we need yeah, to have smarter that, ideas what that, how can you say that's not true that's the most yeah, ridiculous well, thing i've be ever be ridiculous heard. then because it's an artificial concept that so we where do you think where do you think that your food currently comes from because do you grow it in your backyard it is an artificial do, concept uh, that we've come up with and, I'm and glad it's great that, that it works and that's fine and i don't have any problem with a healthy economy and like i said the green new deal and other uh in re renewable energy it is better for the economy than fossil fuels but i do not give a shit in prioritizing yep. that over the environment. The environment gets precedence from now on, and we'll go ahead and put the economy at, say, number three. So another big thing we need to do is we need to have food sources grown closer to people. If your yes. food that you buy at the grocery store has to travel halfway across the world in order to get to you, that's very energy inefficient. Well, getting people to buy local, getting people to consume food that was grown preferably locally, but at least in their own state. I think, uh, you know, informing people about how it's grown. Listen, locally grown is not necessarily more energy efficient. A lot um, of time. Oh. Oh, oh, my man. gosh. Can I say something? Yeah. the economy. I so agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> like, Woo! oh, my God. I wanted to say something so fucking bad. Nathan, this question is just for you. Dun, dun, dun. Do you believe that successful Americans should be penalized for their success in order to redistribute wealth to the less successful? How much wealth would you strip away from the wealthiest Americans? And how would you resolve lost incentives for innovation and wealthy Americans fleeing the country or hiding in offshore tax havens? Sure. Um, well, I would take a lot of their money. I don't think it makes sense for anyone to have over a billion dollars. So you can make... As much money as you want, as long as it's less than $999,999,999.99. So uh, Jeff Bezos now has $200 million, I believe $81 million of which he's made this year. 
in one year, he's made $81 billion. It's absurd. And let me just tell you, the people of Flint, Michigan, they still don't have clean drinking water. I don't think that you can be an ethical person and have that much money at the same time. I also think just from a functional standpoint, from a rational standpoint, it doesn't make any sense to have that much money. Like, what are you going to do with it? I, I think um, on a previous episode, Pat brought up uh, an issue that I thought was salient um, when referring to Elon Musk's fortune. And one thing that makes Elon different and that makes him gathering all that money is that he wants to go to Mars. And everything that he does with that money and every way that he develops that money is to that end. Because he, like Stephen Hawking and many others, think that uh, this planet is kind of doomed at some point, maybe in like a year or 100 years or 10,000 years or whatever. But this planet is not always going to be here. We're living through a pandemic that proves that now. It's pretty mild compared to what it could be. So he at least has a purpose for gathering that money. I, I think it is hard to say that this little girl should go to bed hungry so that Jeff Bezos can throw another coin into his Scrooge McDuck uh, gold bin so we can swim through it. Time and immediately into open discussion. Right. So why is it any of your business whether Elon Musk or Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos does something that's good and productive with their money? We live in a free country. We live in a country that encourages innovation. And if somebody radically develops an entirely new market and they benefit greatly from that market, why do we want to punish that? Why do we want to say that that's not allowed past a certain number? A billion dollars is completely arbitrary. So you sure. you have chosen that number because it's big and it's round and it's divisible. I mean, that makes absolutely no sense. Sure, we can change the number if you want. I'm fine with that. We can do 1.2 billion. What do you think? It's not about the number. It's about why is it any of your business? It's about what it's based on, which is not a damn thing. Sure, you you these men have made their money by stealing money from the American people and from their employees and the only reason why they are where they are now is off the backs of hard-working Americans who willingly so, worked for them, who willingly were customers to their business. Did they if they did something illegal, prosecute them for it? All these people right, made their own choices. Sure. And so if if my uh, my if my problem was legality then you guys would have a leg to stand on but my my problem is ethics people could and stop they using not make that money they didn't make that money ethically they don't treat their employees ethically and so i know they should not have all that money people um, could choose to stop using but Go it ahead. sounds to me Go like ahead. well it sounds to me like what you want to do essentially is is regulate Ultimately, how they run their business, how they make their money, if they made their money ethically, according to you, according to your ethics, then you would you have still a problem with them having that much money? Yeah, but it'd be different. It would it would fundamentally be different because it's again, it's like when Jeff Bezos wakes up in the morning from the time he wakes up to noon, that's enough money to fix Flint. So it would be like if. You, whatever you made at your job 
from 8 a.m. to noon would go ahead and fix the problems of an entire city, could you consider yourself an ethical person anymore? And no, the answer is clearly no. Because so every person, every person in this equation is freely making their choice. We could choose to all stop shopping at Amazon. We could choose to all stop using Google. These innovators, they have something special that is being offered to the market, and everyone is making their own free choices. Why does the government have any business? What's, what's happening? Do you think if I roll up on the Amazon warehouse here in Cleveland and talk to people walking out of it and say, hey, it, is it your best choice? To be working here is do do you want to be working here? Do you like the the standards that your business offers you? No, they do it because I'm very they don't wary have... of government. I'm very wary of government intervention in our capitalist system of rewarding people who have the best product, people who have the best idea, people who. Well, have... Not to mention, if your big government is going to come in here and say exactly how you can and can't run a business, why don't they just own the businesses themselves? Why not just move right on into full-fledged In what universe do you think this is working for us, guys? In what universe do you think the American dream is coming true for the majority of people? Because I assure you, it is not. It's not the that the system is flawed that I have that I'm disagreeing with you on. It's what the flaw is and how to fix so it. So the numbers that we talk about in government spending are trillions. If you took all of and that is time, mm. <clears throat> I'm with Nate though because like if you could be Batman, why wouldn't you be Batman? I would have saved Flint so fast. It's ridiculous. I'd have been standing there with the key to the city, like yes. Okay, question number eight. I can't. I can't. All right. How will you work with lawmakers to prioritize ethics reform in Washington? First up, we have Nate. Uh, well, it would be nice if we had some, right? I mean, ethics um, and reform and any kind of accountability for people's actions. Um the most recent, obvious, glaring thing is the hypocrisy of the Republican Party with the Supreme Court nomination. Um, they, there is, uh, <laughs> there is very clear audio from our last episode about uh, all everything they said in 2016 and how they've changed their mind because they are a party of short-term win over honor or. Or just honesty. And so I think it's important that uh, people have ethics. I think those ethics should be more clearly laid out. And I think there should be clear uh, consequences for breaking those ethics. And it could be anything from losing your position to losing... And time. Mm. Next is... Andy. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, listen, this is the million dollar or billion dollar question, isn't it? I mean, how, how do you convince people to relinquish their money and power in exchange for a more egalitarian government that serves more people that are not them and their friends? Right. And I don't know that I know the, the answer. I don't know that there is an answer. Um, we, we How willing is Congress going to be to even accept reform? So, so here's some things that I think we can explore. Right. We can look into term limits on Congress. We can look into an 18-year term for the Supreme Court with, with uh, staggered terms so that presidents 
can can expect to appoint one judge per term, things like that. Um, but I think also we need protections for whistleblowers, inspectors general, people who are uh, holding the, the elected officials accountable. That's got to be a central piece of this. All right. Okay, so the number one issue for my party in, is ending the influence of money in Washington, and this relates to our lobbying question as well. So to this end, we need several common sense reforms that are going to severely limit the influence of lobbyists. We need to stop the revolving door between lobbyist and public service servant. So for this reason, I propose a five-year waiting period between the eligibility for congressional office and holding positions in lobbying groups, holding uh, CEO positions in business. You need to have a separation of the people who are in power in the private sector and people who are uh, exercising the will of the people in the public sector. And nary should they mix. So another thing that we need to do is you can't use the influence and the knowledge that you have in Congress in order to buy stocks. Open discussion. Awesome. <laughs> so to just continue my point, so if we make it illegal for for yeah. uh, congressmen to own and uh, buy stocks, then we're going to eliminate the insider trading that's going on in Washington that is a huge, huge problem. I don't think Pat gets to go last anymore because he just goes ahead and like rolls yeah, the I end of his point into our four-minute discussion. <laughs> I got important things to say. Yeah. Listen, um, there's a lot of things within our system, a lot of technicalities and loopholes that allow people to gain unfair advantage. And when you have a party full of bad actors like we do right now, the Republican Party, full of bad actors who are more than happy to stand up there and provide lip service to make things look on the up and up to their uh, constituency, but are doing shady behind closed doors deals in the back room. Um, that is not okay. You have a party full of these kinds of people who are willing to exploit any and every loophole that they can get a, a hold of, and that's where you need these inspector generals and other whistleblowers within the system to be able to speak up and, and speak out against that. Yeah, and I think there are two things, accountability and campaign reform. Because I think if you're not if you're not beholden to a large corporation to give you enough money so that way you can do your ad buy in your congressional district of TV ads or radio ads or whatever, then it makes it a lot more likely that you're going to follow your conscience and actually vote the way you think you should vote instead of voting the way that you think they want you to vote. So that way they're going to. So give I really you like that you. I really like that you brought up the idea of whistleblowers. We really need to have powerful uh, sanctions that are in place from punishing whistleblowers. We need to have whistleblowers be a protected class of people. You shouldn't be afraid for your job. You shouldn't be afraid for your livelihood. Right. You shouldn't be afraid for your and, life or your family honestly, when you come forward and you you report bad things going absolutely. on. Right. And, and honestly, how is Edward Snowden not an American hero now? Because we found out that the thing he said that was a real problem is real. We know it for a fact to, now. To me, he absolutely yeah, is an American hero. And so I think, like, not only making it okay Assange. to do it, 
Yeah. Well, no. Right. So I would pardon. I would pardon both of them. I, I, would I don't know about both. Julian. So I would pardon them mm. both. I would welcome them back with open arms. Mm, uh, I I think Assange can uh, eat a dick a little bit, but Snowden. We can agree on Snowden. I was just gonna say you don't have to like that he you know pulled the uh, you know exposed things for for a candidate that you were maybe supporting or whatever. But uh, the fact that he blew a whistle on. Shady dealings and unethical practices is something that should be celebrated. I guess. I guess. So, so look, the, one of the biggest problems that we're looking at is people enriching themselves in office. I think if we can separate, yes. if we can completely sever the influence of money in Washington, yeah. if we can have a volunteer uh, government of people who are concerned citizens and people who are not looking to line their own pockets with their time in office, I think we would be served much better by and, that government. It would be a much more ethical government. And she gets government. a lot of from certain people, but this is one of the reasons I like AOC a lot. Like, having somebody in power now that was a bartender two years ago is amazing to me. Having someone who couldn't afford healthcare before they joined the house having someone who couldn't afford an apartment in DC so she had to stay with friends until she actually got her first paycheck it means that time okay andy on august 5th 2017 you posted to facebook if you are religious do your thing but quit trying to make it seem logical or reasonable except that you're taking a gigantic leap in the face of mountains of evidence to the contrary understand that at this point in history you're either filling gaps in scientific understanding with god gaps which are growing ever smaller or you're simply denying or ignorant of the things that science has proven you're the former cool or but if you're the latter you are a danger to society why do you think that people of faith are a danger to society and why should they trust you to lead them Sure, that's a great question, and I'm glad that you asked it, um, and, uh, and I want to thank you for it. Listen, um, when, I, when I say that, uh, what I'm talking about here is the act of faith is this, they, it's, the, the, the Kierkegaard term for it is the leap of faith. It is this, this step off of a precipice where there is no more fact and evidence and, and logic of that we know, you know, as we would define it, you know, uh, uh, objectively to lean on here. You're, you're going off of a, a book that is allegedly written by people who are channeling the divine will or something like that. And I, I don't mean to be disrespectful in that regard. I, I, um, I, I, I'm not a Christian, so whatever you want to, however you want to interpret the divinity of the book, um, it's it's a leap of faith and inherently is taking you away from purely, you know, evidence based and logic based decisions. And while that is fine for people to make it, I think understanding that decision to make that leap of faith is very crucial and an, an important decision in someone's life. Um, and I'm not saying that someone who has taken that leap in regards to religion is incapable of deciding not to take that leap when it comes to things like say vaccinations or a flat earth. Right. But I think that when we start to blur that line, when we start to muddy that water, we make it easier for more people to take it a little bit further. 
and a little bit further. And right now we're facing a, a country with people who are literally believe that the earth is flat, that vaccines cause autism, that there's a giant conspiracy in our government and all of these crazy things. And that comes from a place of taking a leap of faith to fill in gaps that you don't have evidence for. Pat, I don't know about you, but it sounds to me like Andy works for the deep state. Well, so um, I, I think that what you're what you're saying um, might be true for a few Americans, but are people of faith inherently dangerous to society? Do you think that somebody who makes their decisions in their daily life, if it's from a devotion to God, do you think that they are a danger to society? Because it sounded like that's what you're implying. Do I think that they personally are likely to go grab a gun and shoot up a mall? Not necessarily. But do I think that that way of thinking, that, that the making it okay to make faith-based decisions that are not based in evidence or in reality is a major concern, and I think it should be. So I think that we should have a separation of church and state. I'm a big fan of that principle. But I think you're alienating a huge group of Americans when you say that they are a danger. I mean, maybe that's focusing too much on that one word, but... I mean, I, I think that that's really, quite frankly, insulting sure. to the American people. When I, when, uh, okay, and what, to say that they're a danger, I mean, listen, how many, what percentage of this country voted for Donald Trump? Um, that's a danger. Those people voted um, on, a, a huge portion of those people voted on explicitly religious grounds uh, regarding abortion and, and appointments of judges who are going who are likely to overturn Roe versus Wade. So we got a president for four years who has been dismantling this country because people wanted to overturn Roe versus Wade for right, religious and we just, reasons. So and we yeah, just it's saw, a danger. Well, I, I feel like I might be shifting over to Andy's point, although I would have phrased it incredibly differently. Um, but like, but like Trump has shown disdain for people of faith over and over and over again, but still people of faith tend to uh, think of him as being the more devout of the two main candidates, both of who are going to lose to the Bam party. But yeah, I, that's fine. But like Joe Biden is the one who goes <laughs> to church every week and Joe Biden is the one who's actually a person of faith, but you don't see people of a religious background uh, backing him up. So what so, both of you are missing is that a, a guiding principle for this country, I don't think you would uh, understand where we are as a country if you eliminated Christianity from our history. It's a guiding principle yeah. for us. Oh. I think that our faith it should yeah, be... Yeah, no, it's been central in slavery. It's been central in the uh, the 60s hate movements against... Black okay, so our, our faith itself. is a... It's been central right, it's also, in our hatred of uh, our anti-Muslim actions in the 2000s. But you, like, if you're going to say that, you also have to bring up that it was central in ending slavery and a number of different things that have happened You'll have in this to country. convince me of that it first, can be, but okay. It can, it can be a force Our faith is good. a reason to forgive it's our just, enemies. Our faith is a reason to make peace. Our faith is a reason to respect... Individuals. Your faith, perhaps, but not most Americans. So I think that compassion and love and 
people being at peace with God. I think that this is a great thing. I think it should be a guiding principle for us. I don't think that it's something that we need to integrate into government in a way that violates the separation Mm -hmm. of church and state. But I think that a politician who is guided by faith is as good or better than a politician that isn't. I think the problem here is not faith, but the misapplication of it and using it as a tool, as a weapon to go ahead. Thank God. Next question. Given the ongoing COVID-19 crisis, what should be done to ensure the elections going forward remain free, fair, accessible, and secure? Pat, you are up first. Okay, so it's become abundantly clear that the security, integrity, and sanctity of our election has come under attack, in particular, by Donald Trump. His administration and his supporters, both by the infiltration of the Postal Service by a radical and derelict Postmaster General Louis Joy, and by Trump's rhetoric. In particular, it's concerning that Trump has repeatedly attacked the security of mail-in voting, and even gone so far as to imply he might not cede power in the event of losing an election he deems fraudulent. So concerns have been raised, valid or otherwise, over the ability of the government to prevent election fraud. Despite absolutely no evidence of widespread fraud and the practice of several states, which have voted exclusively by mail for years, including Colorado, Hawaii, Oregon, Utah, and Washington, The bottom line is that there are already security measures in place. When you register to vote, you need your driver's license or state identification card number, social security number, and a valid address. Nate, you are up next. Well, I'd like to go ahead and build on what my fellow uh, nominee has said here and talk about the the horse way that Republicans have tried to say that mail-in ballots are not safe. So Oregon, which is one of the states that he mentioned, uh, has used vote by mail since 1981. Uh, Since 2000, Oregon has sent over 100 million mail-in ballots. And in that time, they've had 12 cases of voter fraud. 12 out of 100 million. That's 0.00001%. So if Republicans who regularly use voter suppression as a means of trying to win elections, thinks that that 0.00001% is worth the trouble, that those 12 ballots are worth the trouble, then I think their priorities are wildly off. And you should make sure that they don't get elected. Andy. So... Right off the rip, I mean, everything that that my fellow candidates here have have said is is solid. Um, One of the things we need to address right away is making voting day a national holiday. People, everyone needs to be able to vote that day. No one one should have any issues. Um, You can always vote early by mail if possible. But we also need to provide more federal emergency funds this year to boards of elections so that they can hire, train, and provide PPE for more poll workers, which, by the way, side note, I took the day off of work on election day so that I uh, can volunteer at a neighbor neighboring uh, district Euclid's polling site. I'm going to be out there helping on the front lines. Uh, we need more to be able to hire more ballot counters. We need to be able to put more public transportation on the street to make sure people can get there on the 3rd. Um, we need to make give the USPS more funds to make sure mail-in ballots get where they need to go. And we need to start enforcing 18 U.S. Code Section 594. And that is time going straight into open discussion. 
Awesome. Well, I would like to know what US code 594 is before sure. we move on. Yeah, let's keep going. Yeah, so we need to be able to, we need to start enforcing uh, 18 US code section 594, which is disinformation and, and voter suppression laws. So people who are at polling sites being aggressive and turning voters off at the polling sites, those people should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law, as well as uh, government officials and public um, public entities and public uh, uh, figures providing misinformation that dissuades people from voting, such as has been committed by the Republicans in the Senate and in the White House. I think we're pretty high harmonious on this question. Um, I really like that you brought up bringing Election Day as a national holiday. I very much agree with that. I think we should be doing everything that we can to make it easier and not harder for people to vote. So since people already registering to vote need their identification, need their driver's license and security, uh, social security number, I think that needing a driver's license at the polls is redundant. I think that we need to take any step that we can reduce the cost to people, reduce the uh, inconvenience to people, just make voting a very easy and cost-free thing. Yeah, if you're going to require that people provide identification, then you have to make... a, a suitable identification, free and easy to exactly. obtain. There's no, there's nothing right. that says that I have to have a state ID. And since I don't have to have a state ID, you should not be able to require me to show it. Because there are people who don't drive. There are people who are old. There are people who used to have one but don't have one now. It doesn't matter. And you know what? By huge margins, the people who don't have these IDs live in low-income neighborhoods. There are specific people mm-hmm. that Republicans are trying to stop from voting, and it's not people who live in high-income neighborhoods. And it's not people who look right. like us. So I, I just want to say real quick, I don't think I have any disagreements. I don't think any of us have any disagreements. I think we're very aligned on this issue. So I would I actually have uh, – I, I would absolutely – I would be making a special task force within the FBI to enforce right. that, that – uh, the uh, uh, voting interventions, anything that gets in the way of free and fair elections. We should also look at gerrymandering. If you commit voter fraud, the highest uh, the highest punishment I was able to find was twenty five hundred dollars and five years in prison. I would make any yeah. any count of voter suppression. Each count would have carry that same fine and that same amount of prison time. And I don't care if you're an individual trying to stop people at the polls or if you're a politician lying to people. Mm-hmm. You would go to jail for the rest of your goddamn life if you tried to stop people from voting. So we also need to reopen polling locations. So in poor areas, there are, are polling stations. This is less relevant with COVID-19 and more people voting by mail. But all the same, um, there are polling locations that have been closed that we need to open back up. Yeah, well, and listen, and they need they need workers. They need people there at the polling sites because those people are are basically the ones yeah. responsible for making sure that the people coming to vote hey, are not by, intimidated away. By the way, away. Andy, thank you for doing that. That's, That's awesome. why I'm doing that it. That is great that you're doing that. I think I've, there's... No joke, that wasn't a lie for the <laughs> I believe podcast it. episode. No, I, I applaud for you real. for that. And I, I would, but I am a coward of getting uh, COVID-19. So there's a... Yeah, no, I'm also not doing it because uh, I'm glad you're doing that, and I've never been happier that we record this podcast remotely. <laughs> I'm not just telling. 
What steps would you propose for ending mass incarceration and tackling the recidivism rate of 76% that we are dealing with in our country? First is Andy. Sure. So a big part of this is actually more about not putting people in prison as much. So I spoke earlier about the importance of ending the war on drugs, systemic racism in the criminal justice system. There's a lot of overlap here. Um, right now, I'd like to talk more about reforming the prison system, system itself. So when we opened the door to private prisons, it was pretty obvious, uh, like new form of socialism for the rich, as Robert Wright would say. Um, they were able to gain political clout for their base, for locking up bad guys and line their pockets at the same time. Human rights violations did not matter. The problem is that we paid them to do this. We, the taxpayers, paid them more if they locked up more bad guys. Didn't care that it made conditions worse. So we need to change the incentives of the system. We need to pay them for more education opportunities, for job training, decent, humane living conditions. We need to reward prisons who show low recidivism rates. We need to pay out for safe prisons. We need to follow the model that professional sports has used. Pay for what you want. Time. Next up is pets. Okay, so we need to increase spending on social work programs. When you improve the lives of inmates in and out of prison, you're making their uh, best alternative to crime much, much better. We need to stop punishing people for life by stripping away their rights as felons. What we need to be doing is we need to start integrating these people back into society. Um, the, the prisons that we have now, they are basically training centers for turning uh, small-time criminals into bigger-time criminals, from turning soft criminals into hardened criminals. The truth is that our prisons are making bigger and more brazen criminals out of people who have made a mistake in their life. So by ending arrests of nonviolent personal drug use offenses, we can reduce the cost and congestion of mass. And that is time. Nate? Well, I, I would like to see us have a prison system because that's not what we have now. The idea behind prison is to rehabilitate the people who go into it. And what we have now is a vengeance system, not a rehabilitation system. Uh, we like to... Uh, hold our noses at people who have trouble, um, be it for drug use or possession or any number of things. What we need to do is not have a single private prison. No one should make a dollar for putting someone in prison. It's horrible. It's not acceptable. Our recidivism rate of 76% also reflects the type of system we have. Norway, for example, who treats its prisoners incredibly well, it's known for that, has a recidivism rate of 20%. 20% instead of 76. Time straight into discussion. Well, I basically agree with everything you just said, Nathan. I just want to get that in there. <laughs> the penal system, as a, you know, a system of penalties, clearly does not work. Right, and you're shutting right. people off from opportunity. When somebody has a record that's going to be asked yeah. for by their employers, that's going to stop them from owning guns, going to stop them from voting, um, you're creating their only, alter their only option is to go back to crime. You're also looking at peer groups. Yeah. People's peer groups are incredibly influential, and their family incredibly influential in these re recidivism numbers. 
And so if we can use social work and and also treatment, so for people with addictions, we need to get them treatment, Mm -hmm. um, and getting people out into jobs, people integrated into society, and get them into better peer groups that are going to save them from getting right back into that same pattern. That's how we're going to combat it. Right, and not only jobs, but housing and clothing and food. And we should be giving these men and women and non-gendered people as much support as possible when they come out. And I think this is something we need to be willing to spend more money on. Absolutely. We need to spend more money on on being willing to improve someone's life, someone who has made a mistake... Instead of just saying you need to be punished for this, they're already losing their freedom for a, for a period of time. The good news is we need to spend incredibly less money than we do now because we spend an absurd amount of money on the prison system and actually giving people better jobs, better lives, better ways to move forward with themselves would be incredibly less expensive than the yeah. system we have now and have better outcomes for everybody involved. Yeah, rehabilitation, uh, when, when you look at somebody's entire life and their entire life improves, their, their option of going back to crime is going to look worse and worse. Right. Like I said, improving the, 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 the justice system and the penal system, a huge part of it is just about not continuing to use it in places where we don't need to be using it, where it doesn't make any sense. And, and it's unfortunate because this is kind of an unpopular idea. This is something that uh, voters really latch on to is uh, a politician being no. soft on crime. I'm not, right. I'm not afraid of that label. I think what we need to be doing is we have the wrong focus. We need to focus Absolutely. on rehabilitation if we want these numbers to improve. I want to come out and say emphatically right now that the party is the softest on crime. <laughs> so, yeah, listen, uh, the UTI party may be soft on crime, but we are tough as hell on recidivism. Right. And not not necessarily violent crime. If somebody does something that's that's incredibly violent, like I still think that you need to pay a societal uh, absolutely punishment for that. But I think that we have the wrong focus. We need to change our direction. But they should still be treated. Yeah, exactly. They should still be treated like humans, which we right. don't do with our prisoners now. Right. We need to treat them like a human who made a mistake, not someone who threw their entire life away. Yeah. Human first, mistake second. And listen, any, anyone, who's in pris- anyone who's in prison and dies from unsanitary conditions, yes. from rats, from, COVID. from flooding, from uh, police, from, from uh, brutality, mm-hmm. from guards, they have fundamentally been failed and denied their due process why by do the we, government. Why do we as a society think that rape in prison is hilarious and we see it as a joke in uh, comedies all the time? Like, isn't that like yes. funny joke? A fundamental horrible thing about the system. Like, but doesn't the it, problem is we created these prison systems that encourage that. Way. Well, that's not a problem of government. That's something we need to examine as a society. That's something that we need to get better at. This time. Well, I would like to, uh, as uh, not the host of this episode, I would like to step forward and say uh, thank you so much, Angela, for being our moderator today. You thank you, Angela. Oh, thank you, Angela. Thank you, Angela. It's been, it's been amazing. You are. So good. You are a so gem. Who, so who won? I want to. I'm dying to know. Yes. Who who won? <laughs> Obviously me. Well, what was the criteria for? Wait, <laughs> we, we we don't have one. It's it's whoever you agree be, with the most. Being the smartest. Yeah, it's for you to decide. It's for the listeners. Who to I decide. agree? 
who Who's I agreed brightest? with the most. That'll have to be a tie between Nathan and Andy. Mm. Uh, it right. was Nathan for a long time, but Andy got me with the religion question. <laughs> I thought I actually thought that I lost you with that one. No, no. Well, yeah. gentlemen, that is it for the debate. Um, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate your transparency and your candor. And I can't wait to do it again. Yes. Yeah. Like um, should we do the elbow bump? Oh, yes. Uh, oh, yeah. The instead of shaking bump. hands. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> well, uh, it has been, uh, I, I don't want to say an honor. Uh, it has been an acceptable time with both of you. And uh, it has been wonderful uh, spending time with you, Angela. You uh, as well. Uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a total pleasure. You've been a delight. The truest friends of the pod. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, it's been an experience, gentlemen, and I'll see you at the next debate. Absolutely. I would like to say, finally, on behalf of the Pew 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 Party, we really need to come <laughs> up with a catchphrase. <laughs> the UTI Party wishes and hopes that you all got something to think about. Love you. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye. Yeah, he's always got to get the last word in. Every time. Bye. Bye. Aubrey, don't say a word for two hours.